This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. This is the Deep Dive, and I am, in fact, Brooke Spector, and I'm with you in this. And today, we're having a conversation with the, up until very recently, Executive Mayor of Johannesburg, Dr. Impo Flatsi. Uh, we scheduled this actually before uh, certain political events happened. Uh, and now we have an opportunity to take a, a bigger look, actually, rather than what does a mayor do and how do you do it and this kind of thing. Now we have a, a discussion about the larger political texture of governing and running and managing a city the size and complexity of Johannesburg. Uh, Dr. Flotzi, obviously, as you can tell, is a medical doctor. And I first met her a few years ago uh, when she was about to take uh, an overseas trip. Uh, and we talked a little bit about her medical background. But I think I'm going to let her tell, tell us a little more about the specialty that she had and what brought her to politics. Dr. Flotzi, please. So I came to Johannesburg in 2011. I came out to specialize in public health medicine. was running my own business, doing disability consulting for SASA, the South African Social Security Agency. And I was confronted with abject poverty in the Northwest, in a place called Khanesa, that was um, where it was at its worst. And I realized that I wasn't helping people because these people that were coming to me asking for disability grants actually had no disability. They just needed jobs and the place was underdeveloped and they, they didn't have adequate opportunities towards being gainfully employed and, and sustaining their own livelihoods. And I, I just, I, it just made me very sad. You know, I was making good money. I was claiming for each one that I saw, but I was actually not helping enough of them because a lot of what they had actually had to do with social determinants of health. So then I decided to come to Johannesburg to specialize at Bits University Medicine, which is public administration with a focus on health care. And uh, I spent four years in the Bits circuit doing a lot of wonderful and exciting things in the world of public health. And um, when I left, I, I, I did a, a few jobs here and there. Uh, while getting ready to reestablish my business, my disability practice. And I, one of them was doing casualty work at Alexandra Clinic, where I used to do five sessional calls a month. And in that time, I was again confronted by poverty in an urban setting in Alexandra, people living lives with no dignity. And it made me very sad. It made me so sad. I cried for a very long time until I started having conversations with various individuals. One of my friends was a member of parliament, deputy shadow minister of health at the time. And he actually challenged me to get involved. And that's when I made the decision to get into politics. The idea was to serve as a part-time counselor to help the people of Alexandra while still running my business. But um, after the elections, we ended up in a coalition government under the then mayor, Herman Mashaba, and he appointed me to serve as the MNC for Health and Social Development. And that's when I became a full-time politician. That says to me, to some degree, you had something of a crisis of conscience. On the one hand, you were doing a job which you liked, which you realized you to do it properly, you actually had to transgress a boundary. You had, uh, in effect, you had to certify people needed disability grants in order for them to get any sort of assistance at all, 
with the understanding that the, that kind of grant really wasn't what they needed. And then the issue was, so how do you change your, not just your perspective, but your actions and your activities? And I, I'm, I'm going to have a slight detour here because one of the things that I was intrigued with when I met you the last time, you had on the most extraordinary set of fashionable sports shoes. And you, you tried to explain to me that these were actually locally manufactured in South Africa, and it was an entrepreneurial project and something you liked. And I said, these are just wonderful. And I was going to get the the name of it and buy them, but we never had a chance to get that. And so I'm, I'm going to ask you to send it to us. We're talking to Dr. Mpo Falazzi, former executive mayor of Johannesburg. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. We're back again. This is the deep dive and this is Brooke Spector. I'm him. And we're speaking with, uh, Dr. Mpo Falazzi, the former executive mayor of Johannesburg. Is that a project that you had much of a hand in or was that simply you just fell in love with the style? No, I was not involved with the project at all, but I used every opportunity to help support and, and promote local business. And, you know, that was not the only brand that I promoted. I've worked, I've promoted different um, local designers, local SMEs in, in every small way that I can. I think we've got very talented people in Johannesburg, and I think we really undervalue and undersell what we have. One of the things that you were executive mayor for not an extraordinarily long period of time, not enough really to have been able to look back over a decade of service kind of thing, but within your rather more limited period of time, what would you point to as the big accomplishments or even the accomplishments that you got started did not yet have sufficient time in office to make, to, to bring to a conclusion? Surely there must be in your mind an inventory of these things and you can say, well, the first was this and the second was that and so forth. My top priority for Johannesburg was stabilizing energy supply um, simply because we're the economic hub of the country the country's GDP, 15% of that comes from Johannesburg. Now, if you have load shedding in Johannesburg, then the whole country suffers. If you've got less productive time for business in Johannesburg, the whole country suffers. And so, you know, whether it was the poor or businesses, when I was going around in my, in my campaign, talking to people and asking them, what is it that you would like the, the mayor do for you in their tenure? Electricity was the biggest, single most talked about issue in areas like Soweto, which is an ESCOM supply area. There's huge um, electricity supply challenges with some neighborhoods having gone for over a year without electricity. So this was really top of my priorities. And very early on, together with NMC Michael Sun, we planned to host a two-day energy in Daba, which was a huge success. It was hosted in May. We invited for the first time independent power producers to come and tell us what they do and how they can help us uh, resolve our energy challenges. Now, our challenges are multifactorial. Number one, we've got a rapidly growing population, aging infrastructure that's not able to cater for the growing population. We've got in some areas, like in Soweto, we've got backyard dwellings where, again, the infrastructure is just not coping. 
Uh, we've got a rapidly developing city as well with densification. Uh, we're having to look at that as well, meeting the bulk infrastructure needs of these new developments. But also we've got an electricity that's expensive for the consumer on the ground. We've got a culture of non-payment. We've got theft and vandalism of infrastructure and so on and so forth. And the list goes on. Cable theft, you've got illegal connections affecting business, affecting formalized areas. And so we really had to put our heads together and say, how do we resolve this? And the two-day in Daba really gave rise to some solutions. In fact, in the month of October, we were getting ready to issue the first request for proposals inviting IPPs, which was a lengthy process had to go through National Treasury and so on. And that's something that we can really be proud of because we had identified how much we need to offset load shedding, we had hoped to stimulate competition and, and get our residents to, to buy electricity at a much cheaper rate than what they're currently paying. And we had hoped to also start servicing underserved areas. So quite a big one for me. Safety, another economic driver in a city like Johannesburg. A lot of businesses that have left the inner city will tell you um, the biggest contributing factor was just the safety component of the inner city and um, started very early on forming relationships with the SAP at the highest level. So I worked very closely with Minister Becky Tsele, but also just um, the, the commissioners, national commissioner, provincial commissioner, as well as the district commissioner were very close friends of the city. We were finalizing the city safety strategy, which was an integrated safety strategy looking at how we can combine resources to keep our cities safe. We had started with our joint operations. We've seen many arrests, an increase of 157% in cable theft arrests, as an example. So we were definitely getting Johannesburg to be safer again. But there was still a lot of work that needed to be done. So those are just a few examples of the many good things that we've managed to do in just 10 months in office. I don't know whether you were told, I'm sitting in Cape Town now visiting one of my children, and I've been in const, almost constant conversation with my wife, who is back and still in Johannesburg, and she's trying to wend her way between power outages, uh, planned and unplanned, water outages uh, that have been announced, uh, at least one fire on the corner of our street uh, with a power line, uh, because of some misfortune, uh, and various, uh, local police emergencies. And then she goes to visit her relatives, her, her sister and brother-in-law and uh, various other people on the, on the western side of Johannesburg, uh, in, uh, black neighborhoods. And when she tells them about her circumstances, then they hear, they say something like, ah, oh, well, okay, we've been without electricity for three days or a week or something of that sort. And all of this cumulative can, cumulatively can make you feel very, very sad and uh, dis, even disconsolate that it can never be fixed, that we will just slowly but surely. Is it possible to achieve this turnaround? Now, I realize it's a big city. It's complicated. And, you know, the old adage about giant oil tankers, it takes five miles before they can make a turn in their, in their, in their path. Just putting on your hat as an ins, as a political insider observing all this, is it possible to make this turnaround for ordinary citizens? 
it's definitely possible, but we need to think outside the box in order to do it. Uh, it was the first time that we opened up for private sector players in the space of electricity supply, as an example, and it was necessary because looking at the backlog, City Power said they needed 26 billion rands in order to stabilize energy supply. The whole capital budget for the entire city for this financial year was only 7 billion rands. So just to give perspective, we're not going to be able to do it without the help of the private sector. But with the help of the private sector, definitely, there's a lot of capacity out there and a lot of goodwill and a willingness to partner with the city and help address the city's energy needs. So it's definitely doable. Of course, it depends on which government is is in power. And I'm hoping that, you know, we can get the right government in as soon as possible so that we can continue with these good plans. One of the things that I, just for the benefit of listeners who came in uh, after we started, we're talking to Dr. Po Falazzi, who was up until just, it seems like a minute ago, was the executive mayor of Johannesburg. And now she's the former executive mayor, and presumably uh, we will want to uh, keep track of her progress in the future. We're going to take a short break. Uh, we have ads to to read and sponsors to satisfy, which we hope our listeners will pay attention to and be supportive of. And we'll be right back with our conversation with the former executive mayor of Johannesburg. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. We're back again. This is The Deep Dive, and this is Brooke Spector. I'm him, and we're speaking with uh, Dr. Paul Palazzi, the former executive mayor of Johannesburg. I'm never quite sure of the difference between mayor and executive mayor, but I guess it has something to do with uh, being operationally in charge as opposed to ceremonial with the chain and cutting ribbons. One of the things that I observe in this conversation about independent power providers, uh, it, it seems to, to me that a lot of people think that's some kind of magic, that if we could just open that window a little wider, people would come rushing in and say, here, plug in here. Here's some more independently produced power and everything will be fine. Isn't there a lead time on this of a year, two, three, four years, maybe even longer? Is that the case or are there ways of actually getting from there to here without that enormous uh, lag for construction and infrastructure building? Well, yeah, so there is a lead time. I think even administratively, I've already demonstrated we had our Indaba in May, and we were only now in October to issue our request for getting, getting uh, green lights from our national treasury, which we've gotten. And, yes, you also write about the infrastructure. Depending on the type of technology you start with, some are easier to just plug in, and others require more infrastructure development. But the important thing is to get started. I had asked through our residents to give me 18 to 36 months to work on the electricity problem, and that was a realistic projection uh, with the help of city power as to what is actually doable in the short to medium term. And that's what we were holding ourselves accountable to, and that's what we asked our residents to hold us accountable to. Yeah, governance is not like magic. You don't just snap your fingers and everything happens. There are 
I mean, engineers have to draw up plans and things have to be bid and there has to be procurement and then there has to be checking and rechecking and somebody actually has to build the stuff. Even a three-year or one to three-year lead time, that seems awfully fast. I mean, what were, what were we talking about? The uh, plug-and-play solar panels or the burning of recyclable material or, or what, what kind of, of power generation were, were you talking about? So we were talking about an energy mix. Um, the first RFP was going to focus on gas and then solar and, and so on and so forth. So we were engaging different types of energy given the capacity that we need to uh, fill. Um, we've got to get about an additional 500 megawatts in order to offset load shedding only and, mm-hmm. and, so, on and so forth. And we still need to cater for our rapidly growing population. So yes, we were engaging different types of energy providers, uh, but we were going to start with gas and follow with solar. One of my bugbears over the years, and I've lived in Johannesburg off and on for 20-some years, 30, no gosh, 30-some years now, time moves fast, is that I wish that there was a civil civic ordinance that required every new building that was constructed in Johannesburg and every building that is renovated to have solar panel installations on their respective roofs so that some contribution toward power could be made in that method. And, you know, I keep putting my hand up and saying, hey, I have a flat roof on my house. It's perfect for a test run. Somebody come in and please put up the solar panels and I'll be I'll be happy to be a test case. Why has something like that not been tried? Well, we've just actually approved the green building policy, and that policy is to incentivize developers to go green. You'll note that Johannesburg is also a C40 city. C40 cities are a network of cities that work together towards climate change mitigation and adaptation. So we do have targets that we must adhere to. We must make sure that throughout the entire institution, every department and portfolio observes green um, workings and, and the green approaches to doing things. A good example is our metro bus, where we had started looking at um, CNG instead of diesel and, and, and petroleum to fuel our buses. It's what we do with waste, waste to biogas, also fueling some of our gases. So across the different parts of the city, we were already looking at how to go greener, to go cleaner, so that we can contribute towards the global targets um, of reducing our carbon footprints. Well, if you ever have the opportunity to push further on this, I really do. I put my hand up, use my house as a test case, because we'll, we'll be happy to be a trial run for various things like that. Now that you're sitting back from your previous office. I mean, I know it's early days and you really haven't had a chance to sort of digest all of this, but are there things that you would have done differently during your tenure without pointing fingers at an individual who didn't step up and do things the way you wanted them? Are there bigger lessons that you have learned from your time as executive mayor? Obviously, um, everybody learns and grows daily, but I think the single most difficult challenge that I had to deal with was managing a nine-party coalition while trying to fix a broken city at the same time. And in terms of coalition management, I certainly think, yes, we had a coalition agreement and we got the agreement and we started running with it. You know, I think we could have done more to really workshop it and to look at what national legislation looks like 
what local government legislation looks like, what the delegations look like, and, and, and put that together with the coalition. I think that's something that we could do better next time. I had reached out to the chairperson of the coalition to ask them to come to Jihad to assist us with that, because what I found was that the different political parties came in with different expectations or, you know, different approaches or interpretations of the coalition agreement. And that's something that I think going forward, should we go back to the city, which we're hoping we will, um, that we will get right, because it just makes sure that everybody's on the same page, you're on the same footing, and you move together as one. One of the things that I've observed now, I, I confess I'm not a city management expert, nor am I a local government expert, but I have noticed a particular feature of South African uh, politics as far as it goes toward the governance of municipalities and local government more generally, is the lack of sustainable tax bases. And that what I mean is, yes, the city collects, they send us a bill. I got one yesterday uh, for my rates and taxes, and I opened it up and looked at it and had to sit down and drink a glass of water before I looked at it a second time. But for the most part, the cities and municipalities in South Africa really don't have a full, large, extensive, all, all-encompassing tax base. They don't, they don't have the ways to generate the revenue that's necessary in a modern city uh, of this kind. Most of your revenue comes from, if I understand it correctly, those individual rates and taxes bills, a number of user charges, and a portion of funds which come from the city for, to carry out certain functions. But there's no way to make uh, major infrastructure building plans without raising more tax revenue. I'll let you think about that for just a second. Um, and we're going to take another ad break. Once again, the sponsors are a crucial part of our of our project here. We hope listeners will support them. And we are speaking with the former executive mayor, Dr. Empo Palazzi, uh, and we'll be right back. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. We're back now with the former executive mayor of Johannesburg, Dr. Empo Falazzi, and I'm Brooke Spector, and this, of course, is The Deep Dive. And just before our ad break, I asked her about taxes. I mean, it's one of those, Ben Franklin, the American inventor and publisher, 300 years ago, said there's one thing certain in life, it's death and taxes. And I wonder whether or not the city has a certain enough capability in the area of taxes. Is there some other way to do this? So let's look at our funding sources. So generally, we've got about three funding sources. One is revenue collected, as you rightfully said. About 30% of our revenue comes from electricity sales. Uh, If you look at electricity, water, and sanitation, combined, you're looking at just over 50% of our revenue. And there's various other levies and rates um, across the different functional areas that contribute towards the city's revenue. So much of what we use actually comes from own revenue generated. And then, of course, there are grants and subsidies from um, other spheres of government, as well as equitable share. That's what we get from the national fiscal on an annual basis. A lot of the grants are conditional grants. For instance, the Urban Settlements Development Grant is for development of urban settlements and it's very conditional, very um, well monitored and but you have to use it for what you got it for. So we get a few of those. 
not nearly enough. And then we, we do attract loans and we also attract grants from the market. One big problem of the city of Johannesburg is unfunded mandates, where over the years, we started taking on more and more and more responsibility that did not belong to us. Now, when National Treasury um, releases funding to spheres of government, they release it in line with constitutional mandate. So over the years, the city took on more and more responsibility that did not belong to the city. In terms of the constitution, it's quite clear which mandates belong to which spheres of government. And unfortunately, over the years, the city decided to take on responsibilities that did not belong to the city. And what that did is it redirected scarce resources from what is core to a local government, such as the supply of water, electricity, to non-core mandates, such as sports, recreation, arts and culture, to use one example. I mean, even if you look at healthcare, the city runs about 78 primary healthcare facilities on behalf of the province. But if you look at how much of the funds that are actually used to run these facilities come from the province, you'll find that the city is highly subsidizing the province. So that's another example. Because of all these unfunded mandates, and they're all over the city, we find that we're unable to do even the things that we're supposed to do. That's why you're sitting with leaking pipes, you're sitting with areas with no electricity, and so on and so forth. We had started a very good relationship with the National Treasury, where we were starting to look at regularizing some of these things. I had commissioned a consolidation of all our unfunded mandates, and it's quite a lot, and it's historic over many, many years. And um, and I had asked the National Treasury to assist us with having crucial conversations with both the National Treasury and other spheres of government to make decisions on whether or not we're going to have certain functions devolved so we can start receiving money directly from equitable share or whether we're going to hand certain mandates back to the the key mandate holder, as an example. But if we go back to the revenue conversation, there's certainly many areas where the city is bleeding money, where we could be earning revenue. A good example is our property portfolio, where we don't know, for instance, uh, we've been having a very tough time with the Joburg Property Company trying to establish from them what, um, how many properties we own as a city and how much rentals we are getting from those properties against the actual value of the properties. And that mm-hmm. information has just not been forthcoming. There's a lot of corruption in the entity and I had put a lot of pressure on the board to deal with it so that we can take back that entity and have our property portfolio begin to work for our residents because we should be deriving a lot more value from the city's properties than we are currently. So there are many other areas where there's potential uh, for for greater revenue generation that we were looking at starting to. In the United States, for example, there's always a competition between a core city and surrounding suburbs or neighboring city or a city in another state offering tax breaks uh, for businesses to move or for new businesses to enter and begin to operate so that the the generation of income and the additional revenue for the, gov- the local government begins to rise. You don't have that option in South African cities, although fortunately, for example, Greater Johannesburg is one large tax entity. A business can't move from the central business district and relocate Santon to avoid taxes if there were taxes. But you don't actually have taxes on corporate income 
or corporate uh, other kinds of corporate charges. Is that something that has to be changed in this country? Is there a way to fix that? I certainly think there's a lot more that can be done, and hence the relationship started with the National Treasury is to really start collectively exploring where we're not capitalizing on what's available. But we're also cognizant of the current economic climate. Unfortunately, we took over a city after two years of COVID. One of the things we did early on was to reintroduce the debt rehabilitation program where people can, could have their debt written off. And this was in cognizance of the fact that many people have lost income, many businesses mm. closed down, and we wanted to assist our residents. So that was really our disposition in the beginning. It was rather let's help everyone to re-recover and help to rehabilitate them into being taxpayers before introducing a lot of other taxes given the current economic climate. But yes, we were certainly looking at how else we can start generating more revenue. Yeah, I, I think the biggest source of untapped revenue must be corporate profits. It, this is not a question of whether one whether there should be confiscatory uh, taxation, but the recognition that any big business, any medium-sized business, uses more city services than they are probably actually paying for. There should be some sort of equitable way of managing that process, uh, even if it simply says, look, we want you to pay more, but we want to give you more in return in, in services. Uh, but that's probably a conversation for another day with a whole lot of people who have some influence on this question. Let, let's turn the, the topic. We've talked a, a bit about electricity, and we're all suffering. I mean, I, you organize your life around when there's power and when there isn't, and you, you come in and you check the inverter to make sure it's charged, and you have lots of candles and solar-powered lights and everything else like that. Um, I certainly do in our house in, in Johannesburg. Um, and the water system, as you have correctly pointed out, is old. The infrastructure for it, the pipes leak, and people are forever trying to get them fixed. But there's also a question of how all this affects traffic and how all this affects the morale of individuals in a city when it takes them an hour and a half to get from someplace to someplace else that under normal circumstances might have taken 15 or 20 minutes. How do you begin to reshape things so that even when there is a problem, some of this stress can be alleviated? Is, is there anything a city government can actually do? Well, yes. I mean, uh, one of the things I spoke about was, you know, quest to address our energy capacity gap, which was going really well. But in terms of traffic lights, as an example, the Job Growth Agency was already introducing UPS-powered traffic lights in recognition of our current reality and and just how important it is for people to commute smoothly through the city where, where you know, it's important for economic activity not to stop. So, so yes, we were already introducing reforms in different areas to deal with our current challenges. But first prize was to really increase capacity so we could completely offset load shedding. Yeah, I'm over the, the last number of years, uh, I've had any number of phone calls to uh, Joe Bird Connect, that infamous telephone number where someone says, your call is important to us, but please Please be patient. There's an, there's a, an extraordinary amount of phone calls ahead of you. And uh, since I'm a particularly tenacious kind of person, I stay on the line until somebody finally 
picks up the phone. And then I, I try not to be angry with the call center person because I know they didn't cause the problem. But there they are, and they're the only person I've been able to talk to. We're going to take another short ad break. Uh, we have to do this because we want listeners to be apprised of our sponsors. We want them to be loved. And we're speaking with uh, the former executive mayor of Johannesburg, Dr. Impo Fulazzi, and we'll be right back. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And we are live, and this is The Deep Dive, and that rhymes. And I'm Brooke Spector, and we're speaking with the former executive mayor of Johannesburg, Dr. Impo Falazzi. And we're, what we're doing today is a conversation not about the ins and outs of parliamentary infighting and not about the who stabbed who in the back and why, but to take a step further back and what are the problems and possibilities of managing a city as big and as complex as Johannesburg is, uh, a city that is often said has uh, the single richest square mile on the African continent in terms of property, and that's downtown Santon. And then at the same time, pretty much within view, uh, is the heart of Alexandra, which is not quite so well endowed. And if you travel 10, 11 kilometers to the west, neighborhoods that are infinitely less well endowed as well. And then there is that major chunk of people in the center, people who are either middle class or aspirant middle class, and who feel the need to be in a city that works and feel the need to be in a city that is the center of things. And I think over the last, let's say for a baseline, over the last two decades, the city has been both blessed and stressed by a large number of people who have migrated to the city in search of opportunity. It's a blessing and a curse because it's you bring, you're getting people who want to be in the city and who want to do well and who want to contribute, but it's a curse because they have needs and they have demands and they have requirements. Uh, their children need education. When they're sick, they need hospitalization or clinics and they need a decent place to live and to work and to walk in the evening. In your tenure as mayor, did you get out and wander through neighborhoods and talk to just average people to get a, a sense of what their feeling was? Tell me how you did that. When you run a city like Johannesburg, we're probably the most unequal city in the world. Um, we live in the most unequal country in the world. And if you look at Johannesburg, it mirrors the South African picture quite uh, extensively. If you look at Alexandra and Santon, for example, you spoke about Santon being the richest square mile in, in Africa. And across the M1, you've got Alexandra, which is one of the poorest urban settlements in this country. So it's very important to, to map your stakeholders accordingly and ensure that you stratify or you differentiate your approach to engaging with all of them. Fortunately, through the different portfolios in the city, we were able to do that. So we've got social development as an example that focuses on our indigent communities as well as our vulnerable and marginalized communities. And we would be able to do targeted stakeholder engagements through their programs and also through IDP sessions, integrated development planning sessions, where for the first time the Joburg multi-party government introduced um, targeted stakeholders 
for IDP engagement. So, for instance, for the first time, we had a separate round for women, a separate round for youth, um, a separate round for persons with disabilities, even a separate round for the LGBTQA plus community, as an example. And, and then you'd have economic development who would uh, engage with big business, as an example. You've got development planning that would engage with the, the, the development, the property development community. And, and through that, we were able to reach all our different stakeholders. Now, if you talk about migrants, social development also has a migration unit that focuses on, on, on migrants and how we support migrants in Johannesburg. We were in the process of reviewing our migration policy. We were the recipients of a grant from uh, the Global Cities Network of 200,000 US dollars, which kicked in in the month of October. And part of it was going to be spent in looking at our, our migration policy and programs to support migrants and, 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 and to regularize the space within the city. Uh, we were in the process of approaching the UN in partnership with C40 as well. C40 cities has a climate change arm and a, and a migration arm, and they were going to assist us to speak to the UN to come into Johannesburg. We are a hub of migration, and it's a very polarizing issue. We've seen xenophobia over the years, and we've also seen people who understand migration for development and are more empathetic, and we needed a mediator or a, or a middleman. In fact, we'd also approached the VIT Center for Migration to mediate just within the coalition, the non-political parties, helping them to define a single position on how to manage migration in Johannesburg. So those are just a few examples of how you would tackle different problems. I think the structure of the city itself is quite empowering in that it's very focused on different stakeholders. And if you've got MCs who are competent across the board and there's great oversight from even the Office of the Mayor and support, then you're able to to make sure that nobody's left behind. We have about a minute left, and I just want to give you a chance to wrap up. But the question that I think I want to end with uh, is, if you were talking to uh, a high schooler from a high school, let's say, uh, in uh, Dobsonville or uh, Chiawello, would you tell them that it's a good idea to try to get into government, to try to get into politics, or would you tell them to run, to flee, to go some, do anything else? I would definitely tell them it's a good idea. I'm not about to quit. As tough as it is, it's got to be done. Our country is broken. Our city is broken. And it's going to take us to fix it. And we need to decide, are we going to go through the fire and march on until we see ourselves living in the kind of city and the kind of country we'd love to live in? Or are we going to turn around and walk away and potentially find ourselves emigrating? God forbid. South Africa is so beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful places I've been internationally. And I would hate to be placed in a situation where I have to consider immigration because we all decided to quit on ourselves and our beautiful country. We'll end with that because that's that's pretty good. Uh, I'm an immigrant, as you as you know, so I, mean, I, I take heart in what you've said. We've been speaking with the uh, the former executive mayor of Johannesburg, Dr. Impo Falazzi, and it's been a pleasure. And thank you very much for all of your time. We we've, we've had a, a nice conversation. Please send me the information about those sports shoes, though. Don't forget. Will do, will do. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been great chatting. You take care and have a good rest of your day and week in the future. Thank you.